This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Just coming off uh, just about five hours of testimony with uh, Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook. He went before uh, the House Energy and Commerce Committee and, of course, about five or six hours of testimony uh, yesterday before senators. Let's talk about it uh, with our roundtable. We've got uh, Robert Bell back with us, co-founder of Intelligent Community Forum, a think tank working on helping communities use information and communications technology for economic and social development, really looking at the 21st century community. Alex Webb, also in the house, normally in our London Bureau. He's our European uh, gadfly tech columnist. Uh, and like I said, both of them in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Um, Alex, let me start with you. You've been following this very closely. I've been listening to what you had to say. I feel like he did pretty well. This is a lot of testimony. Absolutely. I'd love to see what his marathon time is. Um, the, <laughs> I, I, it was quite interesting this morning. This morning was when he seemed to be a little bit um, back on his back on his haunches, so to speak. Um, he seemed a little bit testy when the uh, congressmen, congress, well, the lawmakers, I should say, law, yeah. congressmen and congresswomen um, were cutting him off, you know, seeking sort of rat-a-tat, yes, no answers. There was a lot of it of that today. Like, here's the question. I know you don't have the answer, but I've got the answer. Yes. And they had a minute less each each questioner, which maybe they were more conscious of the time. Therefore, um, when it came to lunch, yeah, or it came to the, 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 the um, biological break, I think you call it. Um, <laughs> and he had a few minutes to recompose. I'm sure his team was saying, take a deep breath. Don't get angry. Don't get um, riled up. And he seemed to be a lot more confident this afternoon. Yeah. Let me bring in um, Robert Bell. Bell, you know, Robert, you look at, you know, the impact of technology and all this good stuff, social media and the like, and what it's doing for our community, what it will do for future communities. You've been watching, listening. What's your take? Well, he did a very good job. I mean, quite frankly, his job was to not let himself get riled and to just give his position over and over again in, re in uh, response to repetitive questions for two days, and uh, he, I think he did a great job with that. His biggest problem was to avoid having something that would uh, be a bad headline in the paper, and he certainly knocked that out of the park. What's interesting about all of this is Mr. Zuckerberg is in the hot seat, but I actually think we should be in the hot seat because social media is a very interesting platform, and if there's a great genius behind Facebook's work, and there certainly is, it is that they have found a way to monetize a very basic human drive, which is to share gossip. And, and build communities. And build communities, but mostly to share gossip. There's a, a fascinating, uh, <laughs> MIT researchers did a fascinating study recently in which they were able to show, they, they got their hands on 126,000 tweets dating from 2006 up to 2017, sent to 4.5 million people. And what they discovered was that, that uh, false claims are 70% more likely to be shared on Twitter than true claims. And that they, when they are shared, they tend to travel six times faster, six times farther out than the truth. So that's just a very human thing. 
right? And and Facebook has figured out a way to monetize that. I don't know what that says about us as people, Alex. <laughs> I, I think we can all agree that we here in the room are fantastic people. But um, <laughs> I, I, inter- like extrapolating on that a little bit, it, it is interesting. I remember back in 2006 when I was a fresher at university and we had a message went around the whole university, University College London, saying we've got this great, been given this great new tool. It's called Facebook. It's a great way to stay on top of your work, stay in contact with your coursemates. And this is how it was offered to people. We signed up for it, not really at the time even thinking about what signing up for that thing 12 years ago would mean now, right. namely that they would be taking that data and monetizing it. We weren't cognizant of those factors. And the, particularly yesterday when, you know, I think it was it was a good win for, for Facebook and for Mark Zuckerberg because the, the headlines in today's papers were weren't the senators asking dumb questions, which for Facebook, that's a, that's a great PR win. Now, that also told the story to me that the it showed why regulation has been so slow to catch up because mm-hmm. you know they are not as well informed as maybe they could be or should be irrespective of the semantics of that they are playing catch up and we also have been playing catch up so we can take responsibility ourselves for our you know proclivity for gossip but I'm, yeah sorry no let me just jump in and then go i'm sitting here listening thinking well, these aren't the right questions we're asking cuz shame on all of us if you don't realize when you go online or sign up for something and yep none of us reads those those statements but if you don't realize that your information is being collected in a digital dossier well shame on you but which is why i think the questions about you know um, my was particularly pertinent because you know I was I eight, 18 19 when I did it I, I therefore didn't particularly know as I said what I was signing up for now that's a question of education but, but I, that's I, why there's all those parental oversight applications exactly at this and point. but they weren't at, I mean 18 right. 19 I'm an adult right so yeah. it, it's obviously my fault but you know nobody had told me that if you're not paying for it you are the product like and that is something that I think just needs to be drilled home to everyone well, and it's one of the, I mean, it's, yes, it's one of those things. Shame on us, perhaps, that we didn't know were being collected, but also shame on us for relying upon a medium like this for news. Uh, I can't remember what the statistic is. Some enormous percentage of people get their news from Facebook and Twitter. And I don't know about you, but when I was being raised, my parents and my teachers said to me, don't listen to gossip because it's most of the time it's not true. You might actually turn to a source like, I don't know, Bloomberg Radio to hear something that's news mm-hmm. as opposed to gossip. Well, it's funny. I was having a debate with somebody and we were just talking about a younger generation and you know whether or not there's real clarity about kind of fact fiction, what are good sources. Certainly when I was beginning being a journalist, I knew exactly when I was talking to somebody, whether it was a think tank or policy uh, institution, I knew kind of what their slant was. I knew if I went to a certain publication, it was more conservative or more liberal. And I'm not so sure that we're growing up in a world today where that clarity is there, Alex. It, it seems to me the danger is not so much that um, people believe fake news, it's as they don't believe true news. That, you know, everything, I think people are now learning, oh, I have to question what is true or what is not. But you know, I tend to think, and having worked at Bloomberg News before I moved on to the opinions side for several years we have very right, high you're one of those opinion people uh, yeah, yeah unfortunately um if, <laughs> that's, if that's your view on it yeah no, 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 no. <laughs> but um yeah, but i know that we have exceptionally high editorial standards there's yeah. a lot of you know if we don't have two sources we need three sources or four and we sources get in trouble if we do it wrong and we get or we trouble. get fired exactly and if um that is not the case everywhere but it means that people you know i put a story out, publish a story, and people say, I don't believe that's true. Well, no, you can believe what you want. Do you have facts to back it up? And it's this conflation of what is true, what is opinion, what is not, which is really problematic. But what's very interesting, too, is and I feel like as we go through um, what either politicians say or folks say, when even we put out the fact, there are lots of people out there that don't care about it, and I don't know where that's coming from. Well, that's coming from the emotionality of social media. 
I mean, social media creates this little universe we can exist in, and it's an emotional universe. One of this, this MIT study I talked about, another fascinating fi finding, um, false claims tend to elicit one of two emotions. Either surprise, because they're amazing, you don't, didn't know that, you know, that, that Santa Claus gave birth to an illegitimate child, or disgust, mm -hmm. rage. Whereas true news, interestingly enough, tends to inspire either anticipation, as in there's more to the story, or sadness, because it's a bad thing, or joy, because it's a good thing. And those are kind of private, cool emotions, whereas surprise and disgust, you want to react to that. I think one of the things, you know, it's intended to be positive with Facebook, that you can't dislike something, right? And, and, but That's I think one, truth, one, right? of the, um, one of the side effects of that is that it fosters people constantly posting things because they want the affirmation of a like. Now, if there was a dislike button, people might be less inclined to post things if they felt it might get a negative reaction. So what we're seeing is so much information being thrown out there, irrespective of its validity, that it then, that it, it then creates a sort of a snowball effect, which can ultimately prove negative. Anything changes for Facebook? Just quickly, Alex. Um, I, I think they've got to make sure their culture identifies problems going forward and doesn't leave it to the press to do so. That has to be the sea change that happens. They need to be responsible. Exactly. And I think we need to be responsible. I think in addition to what Facebook will do, after all, they have a business model and their challenge is to figure out how to, how to make this a better site without destroying their business model. But we have to remember how new this is. Yeah. We will adapt. We will get better over time at figuring out how this relates to our lives. We're going to make mistakes along the way, that's for sure. Robert Bell, thank you. Co-founder, Intelligent Community Forum in our New York studio. Alex Webb, thank you as well. He is our European gadfly tech columnist, normally in London, but in our New York studio. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. All right. In the house, in our New York studio, we've got Kath Kathleen Hayes, Global Economics and Policy Editor uh, at Bloomberg News, along with Carl Riccadonna, our chief U.S. economist at Bloomberg Economics. We did get those Fed minutes. Um, Kathleen, what have you been thinking? I'm assuming you've been reading them over. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting, Carol. Bear in mind, the 30-year bond, bond's up a half a point, right? Mm -hmm. Because it focused, it's the yield down to 2.9, uh, 2.997. The 10 years up 5.30 seconds, yields at 2.78. So, uh, obviously, the focus today for the bond market is uh, avoiding risk. It's about attacks on Syria. It's about Donald Trump tweeting about attacks on Russia. Uh, 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 you've got uh, Saudi Arabia. Just a little bit of geopolitical missiles. And by the way, Dan Fuss, who is one of the Love bond Dan. emperors mm -hmm. of our time, um, Loomis Sales uh, vice chair, what, joined us last night on um, Daybreak Asia. And uh, I had gone to Dan's press lunch, and he says he sees the Fed doing the whole, probably the three rate hikes this year and continuing. The 10-year yield, he says, could get above 4% by 2020, unless, unless there's the, the, a big trap is fallen into. And the big trap is that the U.S. and China continue Trade tensions escalate. And what does that do to the world's central banks? It may throw them into the trap of even if inflation is rising, saying, huh, trade tensions are going to, and trade wars could hurt the economic outlook, hurt the economy itself. So they're going to be in a position where they have a very tough time raising rates. And that would be the reason that 10-year yield doesn't keep rising. I just think these uh, yeah. Fed minutes were interesting. We can bring in Carl to talk about that because... Whatever the headline is on the story today, I think there's a little bit of a backstory here that isn't meeting the eye in these minutes. Carl Riccadonna, well, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> Would you leave something like that? Well, like, honestly, what? okay, because... Bum, bum, bum. I know, exactly. <laughs> okay, the, the, this, this story says that everybody for the first time agrees that That's they're the going to the hike the key rate at a slightly faster rate. <laughs> I can think of two interviews that I did in the last month 
one with Neil Kashkari, president of Minneapolis Fed, not a voter, but I said, would you, would you support the rate hike? He said, yes. I said, why? He said, because I wanted to support the new Fed chair. If, if inflation doesn't rise, I'm not going to surprise them. Yes. This is a popularity contest? What is this? No, it's, it's, well, no, it's much that, fun. Well, that's actually or important, not, though, yeah, to great. show continuity yeah. oh, between okay. Chair Yellen and right. uh, the incoming chair, uh, Jerome Powell. And so uh, Everybody gets you know, along. some, of, some uh, officials absolutely did uh, feel that they would go along for the first meeting and then save the, uh, the heated debate for uh, later on. And I think there's a little bit of a misread of the minutes taking place here uh-huh. because uh, I saw the initial reaction wait, from a wait, lot wait. of folks. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun done was uh, all these minutes are hawkish Uh, and actually the quote uh, people are pulling uh, you know are are pulling is a number of participants indicated a stronger outlook for economic activity along with increased confidence of inflation going to two percent implied that the appropriate path for the fed funds rate over the next few years would be slightly steeper we already knew that from the dot plot that that over the next few years uh, slightly steeper that means this continued gradual pace which we saw last year, which right. will extend for this year, is only being extended further into the future. That's that backfilling of rate hikes, oh. which we've talked about previously. This is not evidence that the Fed wants to go faster now. And I think that's where the mystery is happening. And you look so steady for longer. Exactly. Steady for longer. That doesn't mean that's being misread as uh, faster now. Uh, and uh, the Fed is not shifting away from that three to four rate hikes. And there's plenty of evidence in the minutes. Three to four this year. Three to four this year. A total and there's of not three to four more. Pl- no, right. right. Three to four this year. And there's plenty of evidence in the minutes of uh, folks who are willing to uh, explore supply side economics and, and see uh, whether or not uh, all, all of the tax reforms and what's not whatnot uh, may have some benefit on capital deepening, changing the underlying growth rate for the economy. Right. They don't want to smother that okay. uh, with aggressive Fed tightening. And let me add one more thing. My other Fed interview that I was this week. Uh, Rob Kaplan, Dow's Fed, he was in Beijing. Uh, I'm here in New York. We we got a chance to talk to him. I talked to him at length. One of the very interesting things, not only did he, he said, yes, it's too way too early for the Fed to put the whole trade battle into the equation because we don't, he said, we don't even know what tariffs are going to be put on. Right. These things take a long time. Changes by the hour, by the day. Also, he said, yes, my base case is my baseline for 2018 is still three hikes. But when I look out over the next couple of years, this is very different from what you see in the minutes, Carl. What Rob Kaplan said was, I'm concerned. He said, I think the underlying uh, drivers of the economy are still vulnerable. He's worried about productivity. He's not sure that this fiscal impact is going to last for a long time. So I think what he was saying, he's much more cautious about the outlook when you get past this year. And you do not see that reflected in those headlines, in these write-ups on the FOMC. So wait, so make sense of this, because the one headline that jumped out at me was Fed sees, quote, significant fiscal policy growth boost next few years. And I thought that was a longer trajectory or longer Uh, looking out. And I was surprised. Few is basically two. Is that what we know for the horizon uh, for this Isn't uh, that a couple for the tax plan couple i would have thought three few. or four in mine my, my few, few to me a couple is two and right. few, a few would be three, three or four, four and several maybe three five or maybe six. three yeah. but the point is uh, all of these fiscal tailwinds uh are only a temporary tailwind. Now, some of this could be the supply-side miracle that I alluded to previously, right. uh, but some of this is also uh, just temporary, you know, cheap, sugar-high fiscal stimulus, borrow and spend. Uh, and when that fades, then you have a problem coming about uh, 2020 uh, as these fiscal tailwinds uh, start to uh, either disappear or reverse. And without some sort of offsetting policy action, uh, the economy could uh, hit a rough patch in uh, in 2020. But this is why I say, when I 
saw a few years, I thought, wow, yeah. wh- what what gives them that visibility to look? Well, well, another thing, my, I, my interpretation, crunching of the it. numbers of the uh, fiscal plans. Well, yeah. you know, another thing the Dallas Fed is very focused on is uh, technological disruption, mm-hmm. and Rob has talked about this. We're a lot. seeing it, you know, with Facebook that, that's, and others. That's a reason why it's tough for inflation to rise. It's it's tough for prices to rise. It's tough for wages to rise, and he is concerned that that is going to continue and deepen. So I think he's bringing a lot to the table, which makes him wonder just how much momentum you can you can put under the economy and under inflation once the impact of the whatever however strong the fiscal impact is when it starts fading out a bit then you've got an economy that faces all kinds of things and oh by the way there's still globalization there's all kinds of challenges so again I, I just it, when I put all that together in my head, I'm thinking, hmm. And then we know the minutes are kind of massage. Wait, does that mean the, this economic cycle, in your view, Kathleen, can go even that much longer? Oh, I think me. I don't know why. And Carl's more more better on this than I am. I feel like this. It, did without, you say more better? I sure did. Wow. Just for fun. But I, I just <laughs> think, bum, bum, bum. exactly. <laughs> but because um, <laughs> it, it seems to me if we if we if we don't get a huge shock from trade, which I still think we won't, because I think they'll work it out. That maybe having a little and, and we got the fiscal impact. Just seems to me that we can keep going. We can keep going for a while. I don't see this recession threat right around the oh. corner. But if I look at the flattening yield curve, which what is a Carl's down at thirty seven basis points from what five to 30s today right. that's telling you there's not a lot of inflation uh, that is priced yeah. in by market participants and therefore the fed doesn't have to move that aggressively and that's why my team is still in the camp of just three rate hikes uh, this year while some of the balance sheet unwind does uh, heavy mm-hmm. lifting uh, for uh, for the fed do you see this cycle continuing Carl, uh, i think uh, this cycle has a lot further to run so yeah. to paraphrase yeah. what uh, kathleen was saying uh, a 4.1 percent unemployment rate doesn't mean what it used to mean yeah. right and that means that we can run the economy hotter uh, than we have uh, historically without all of the inflationary uh, imbalances arising that cause the Fed to have to move uh, more aggressively. That's what's the the heart of the the discussion that Kathleen's uh, uh, referring to. But if we take the temperature of the economy, and we can do this lots of different ways, the worst way of thinking about economic cycles is to use a stopwatch. Right. And when we use a stopwatch, we say, well, we're nine years into the expansion. The average cycle is shorter than that. It's got (laughs) to end soon. When we look at economic fundamentals like tame inflation pressures, a lack of wage inflation in the economy, uh, uh, the level of interest rates, the trend in corporate profits, all of these things are characteristic of an early to mid-cycle economy. Now, I'm not going to say we're early cycle, uh, but uh, there's a lot of signs that we are mid-cycle. And uh, similarly, if we look at the composition Mm. of growth, what's driving the economy, uh, it's consumer spending, it's interest-sensitive spending at the moment. We're starting to see the emergence of business investment. That's a typical mid-cycle cycle development. So this is not an economy in its twilight phase. And that's not saying that we have another nine years to run uh, in the current cycle. Uh, But if policymakers avoid making a mistake around that uh, 2020 uh, reversal of the fiscal uh, uh, tailwinds, uh, then they can uh, probably extend this cycle for a good while longer. If we make it to this point next year, it will be the longest economic expansion in post-World War II history. I would just add that I think that's why the Fed's job right now is so important and so tricky. Because, right? Because they, they, I can understand they want to make sure things don't quote-unquote overheat. Right. 
Uh, I can understand that you've got to normalize, but at the same time, because I think when you throw the balance sheet tightening in, that's something they've ever done. They've never been raising interest rates while they've been reducing nearly a $5 trillion balance sheet. So presumably that's going to be a big challenge. Or, and no central bank has done that in the history of the universe. All right. Amen. So, okay. Well, so, do you know that's, do you think that's true on Venus? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's ask Elon Musk if you can get us there or, or Jeff Bezos. Um, what I'm curious too, so, all right, so maybe this economic cycle continues to go on, but the idea and things that President Trump has suggested of getting even more growth out of this economy, is that not likely in terms of can we get it through productivity gains? Can CapEx and spending, can that well, help us get That's another thing that, that Kaplan and others pound the table about. We've got to educate our workforce better. We've got to have uh, the, the R&D and all that kind of investment because that's, I think, one of his concerns about the economy when you get past the fiscal push that your productivity is still problematic. Right. Some of the tax reform was simply just uh, sugar high, uh, you know, borrow and spend uh, type of uh, uh, economic stimulus. However, there are parts of the tax code uh, that incentivize capital investment. Yes. If you're improving the corporate tax rate uh, relative to our uh, international peers, uh, that favors uh, investment as well. So there are some measures in place that actually could uh, contribute to some of that uh, economic miracle, uh, which uh, the president has uh, been uh, talking about. Uh, but really, if we want to uh, evolve towards some much faster pace of economic growth, uh, there's two factors at play. One is productivity has to rebound. We need more more output per worker. That requires investment in and all the things we've discussed. Workers? The other side, uh, demographics are destiny. We need more workers. So either convince people to have more babies or open the immigration gates. There simply are not enough workers. The growth rate of the labor force is not enough to sustain that faster pace of Japan, growth. Look at Japan, look at Germany. They're all having these troubles. I can't Aging have any workforce. more babies, Carl. Don't look at me. <laughs> Carl? <laughs> Time's dun, up. We dun, gotta run. <laughs> Kathleen Hayes, Carl Riccadonna, you guys are great. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Value investor John Buckingham is chief portfolio manager at Al Frank Asset Management, also editor of the top-ranked The Prudent Speculator newsletter, $750 million in assets under management, on the phone from lovely Laguna Beach, California. According to the Holbert Financial Digest, by the way, the Prudent Speculator portfolio returning on average, I think it's about 14% annually over the past 30 years. They speak very highly of the newsletter. John, nice to have you back with us. Uh this market environment for a value person, uh, you've, I bet, had a lot more opportunities as of late. Well, certainly um, it's a market of stocks and not simply a stock market. And uh, even though the major market averages, believe it or not, despite the volatility we've seen this year, aren't that far from, you know, break even on the year. S&P's down 1%, Dow's down 2%. Um, there certainly are bargains that are always created in, in any market environment, and especially in, in this one where you have uh, you know, many of the tech stocks, even though they've come down somewhat, that they've uh, performed uh, sensationally. And then you have things that have uh, you know, been uh, sort of ignored. 
Um, and then here, as we've had fears of the trade, uh, potential trade war, you have uh, um, industrial companies have been hit pretty hard. So there's opportunities always out there. Do you care about any of these big macro stories, whether it's North Korea, whether it's the volatility, whether it's Syria? Um, and I don't mean care from a personal level in terms of, obviously, the tragedies that are happening in Syria. We all are concerned about that. But I mean, when you look at it from an investment perspective, market perspective. Well, there's, you know, there's always uh, things going on in the world. There's always things going on in the economy and business. And if if we uh, bailed out of stocks every time things looked dicey, we'd never be in stocks. You know, the time to be nervous is when there's nothing to be nervous about. Right. Um, and, of course, um, you know, memories uh, fade. You know, we can go back and we do this, of course. We, look, we crunch a lot of numbers. You know, you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, well, the S&P 500 is up 4,500% since then, uh, not including dividends or dividends reinvested. But when, know, we were in the th- to- right, but when we were in the thick of it, right, it probably felt like the world was coming undone. Right, and that and that's that's the the key point is that when you're going through it, living, breathing it, it it can be very scary. And believe it or not, there are people, including uh, you know, one very prominent person who was commenting last week that this is the most volatile market environment he's ever seen in his career. And he's you know he's in his 80s. Um, it's not. Uh, 2011, we had far greater volatility. Obviously, 2008, far greater volatility. Just because the numbers are big on the Dow, you know, you have triple-digit moves. You know, my goodness, the Dow is up 500 points or down 500 points. When you look at it in percentages, um, it's not that grand. Um, yes, it's disconcerting to have a four or 500-point rally melt down to nothing or, or reverse um, but for the long-term oriented investor, these are things that you, you live through. And as I said, if you take a longer view of, of returns, um, you know, so far year to date, you know, stocks are down a little bit, um, even though we've had plenty of scary movements along the way. Interesting that you say that. Who did you, who did you mean most uh, volatile market? Are you talking about Buffett? <laughs> no, uh, John Bogle. Oh, John, uh, was, yeah. Yeah, he was out last week suggesting this is the most volatile environment he's ever seen in his career. And, and uh, again, that's wrong. It's false. And, you know, my, my, my job is to try to keep people on their path to achieve their long-term investment well, objectives. And, uh, unfortunately, there are many out there who, who don't have that same mission and are trying to scare you into to doing this, that, or the other thing. And, and there are a lot of things to be scared about, don't get me wrong. But right. People, when people are factually incorrect, that's when I, I get my uh, my dander up. It's funny. I had a conversation with uh, one of our younger members of our, our 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 staff here. Smart person, but she's you know said um, I haven't seen these big drops. So when the market drops four hundred points, it kind of makes me stop. And sitting next to her is someone who has seen uh, you know an older individual who has seen lots of market cycles and said market goes up, market goes down. Because indeed, <laughs> that's the case. And I guess when you've seen a lot more, you know. It does give you some perspective um, out there. Having said that, though, John, um, tell me what you have found interesting in terms of opportunities, investment opportunities that you might suggest uh, investors or that you guys have been putting, allocating some money towards. Sure. Well, we're trying to take advantage of, of you know, the stocks that go on sale. You know, we, yeah. we buy bargains. Um, airlines have been on sale, so something like a Delta Airlines or Alaska Airlines. Um, industrials have pulled back significantly, so a Caterpillar or a Deer. 
Um, and then anything uh, that that might be touched by Amazon has uh, the market has assumed that Amazon can do anything better than any other company in America, and so things like Walgreens, Boots uh, is attractive, CVS in the healthcare area, McKesson, Cardinal Health. There are a lot of opportunities out there, and then you can even go on into retail, like a Walmart, which is pulled back, um, or a Williams Sonoma, uh, which is also pulled back on concerns about rising interest rates and what that will do to uh, you know home sales. So hey, there's, you, a, there's a lot of lot of things out there. You mentioned Caterpillar and Deer. What about a GE? Well, um, GE, we believe it or not, we had owned it at one point. Uh, happily got out of it at 24, mm. um, and uh, it's at 13 today. Numbers, yeah. Yeah, the numbers on GE just don't add up in our mind. It's not a value stock yet. And frankly, uh, because of all of the financial engineering and spinoffs and whatnot, it's very hard to get a good handle on, on what the true value is of GE. So I would be avoiding GE at this point. Hey, just quickly, uh, any of the tech names that have pulled back? I just got about 20 seconds. Are they of interest at all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, something like Corning, which is down six, you know, sixteen percent this year. Uh, Intel has pulled back on the concern about Apple dropping them, um, and so those would be a couple names. And uh, Cisco as well has pulled back here a little bit. And again, all these companies give you uh, reasonable valuations and dividend yields and potential, uh, you know, long-term growth. Good stuff as always, John. Thank you so much. Appreciate uh, your time uh, on this Wednesday, John Buckingham, Chief Portfolio Manager at Al Frank Asset Management, editor of the Prudent Speculator News. Newsletter joining us on the phone from Laguna Beach, California. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. 